If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you think about both the gunpowder plot a year earlier and mm. play now, Shakespeare may have dodged two bullets. That was James Shapiro, author of a new book on the year 1606. They became tremendously successful people, politicians, teachers. In that, I believe, they ultimately fulfilled Suichi Sakamoto's dream. And that was Judy Checkaway, talking about how an ambitious project to send a group of poor children of Japanese ancestry to the Olympics shaped the rest of their lives. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fourth podcast of November 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with James Shapiro, a professor of English at Columbia University and an expert on Shakespeare. His 2005 book, 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, received numerous prizes and plaudits. And he has just followed that up with 1606, William Shakespeare and the Year of Lear. James paid a visit to the UK recently, and we sent our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, to London to meet him. 1606. Um, OK, so Shakespeare's 42. So how, how was the mood of the nation um, during this year? The mood wasn't good. Mm. Um, the year was good for Shakespeare, but really bad for England yeah. and Britain as well. And it was as fraught a time as probably any that Shakespeare had lived to lived through, perhaps going back to the Armada. Yeah. But it would turn out to be a pretty good year for him yeah, personally. You know, <clears throat> poets, writers feast on bad times. Yeah. And Shakespeare had really struggled to find his footing under King James. The last few years he'd been writing on the average of play a year, yeah. really below what he had been doing on the Queen Elizabeth. This year he really uh, understood how to connect with this dark, troubled moment and rattled off three great tragedies. Yeah. I mean, um, James is quite, uh, was quite a different figure to Elizabeth. Um, how do you think Shakespeare found that? I mean, do we see that in his... In, in, does he adapt his writing to, to, to please this new monarch? Everybody loves Elizabeth. Yes. Everybody loves the <laughs> Tudors. No <laughs> one 
loves James. Probably not even Queen Anne mm. uh, loved James. Maybe James loved James. He was a brilliant and mercurial figure who wanted things that no one else in the land wanted. One of the things he wanted was a union of Scotland and England, unraveling as we speak, perhaps, but at the moment when the two are coming together. And he spent much of this year trying to sell that to the nation, circulating coins called the Unite, creating the Union Jack and insisting that it fly, uh, and speaking to Parliament and reminding them that he wasn't a bigamist. He couldn't be married to two kingdoms. So Shakespeare, like many others at the time, understood that James was imposing what we might speak of as a kind of um, identity crisis. What did it mean to be English? What did it mean to be Scottish? What might it mean to be British? And goes and writes King Lear and Macbeth, which are two British plays, a lot different than the English Henry V or Richard II. Yeah, and obviously there's the, sort of the history plays, weren't they, which are very popular. I mean, was there an appetite, do you think, for something new? I think there's always an appetite for something new. You know, mm. They had to change the play every day at the Globe and mm -hmm. every other theatre in London. Not, none of this Cats or Les Mis now and forever. <laughs> so a playwright, especially one uh, who'd been at it for 15 years or so, like Shakespeare, had to constantly be looking around, looking over his shoulder at the mm. young bucks who were up and coming and probably saying Shakespeare was past sell-by date, uh, which he was not. But that's what I suspect many were thinking at this time. Yeah. And he had to come up with fresh material. Why do you think he'd been struggling a bit with, with the writing? I think he was really lucky mm. to have come upon the English stage during the last decade or so of Queen Elizabeth's life. Mm. Everybody knew the Virgin Queen had not named a successor. So Shakespeare writes not just history plays that are about succession, but Titus Andronicus, Titus, every play in a way is a succession play because mm. that's what preoccupied, at least politically, uh, the nation at this time. Well, that ended with a man with two sons, a wife, a daughter, you know, an heir and a spare came to mm. the throne. You couldn't write succession plays. And Shakespeare had to uh, figure out what kind of plays you could write. And this year brought him uh, closer to understanding what kind of plays might, might work. I mean, some of his pl those, the plays you mentioned that he, he writes in 1606, um, Macbeth in particular, come quite close to the mark probably for James with the murder of a king, you know, I mean... He, he must have thought about that when he was writing. Shakespeare's company had actually staged, two years before this, a play about an actual assassination attempt on King James called The Tragedy of Gowrie. It had happened up in Scotland. It was a little murky, and it, it, it played twice at the Globe and was shut down. So there's clearly an interest in this sort of play. On the other hand, you could go too far. And one of Shakespeare's great gifts was going right up to that <laughs> edge. You know, I'm sure when King James left the theater after seeing plays like Macbeth and Lear, he must have been smiling and scratching his head, wondering, was that critical or, <laughs> uh, or not? Yeah. And we're still left scratching our heads. Yeah. Um, King Lear, I mean, he was adapted from an earlier uh, play, wasn't it? Um, it? Shakespeare changes the ending very dramatically. Well, again, was that... Is that is that for like the, he thinks that's what the public are wanting, or is that just his own, making his own? This is a terrible analogy, but imagine a story everybody knows, Pride and Prejudice. Mm. Elizabeth and Darcy end up together. Well, imagine on the last page of that, and then they died of plague. <laughs> you know, the moment they reached the altar. That's kind of what Shakespeare did with this old play of King mm. Lear, L-E-I-R, which ends with the king restored to his throne, reconciled to his youngest daughter named Cordella, not Cordelia. So Shakespeare takes this Elizabethan play, does a gut renovation of it, turns it into a Jacobean play that speaks to his moment, and makes it into the darkest tragedy imaginable. And that had to come as a shock, if you knew that story, mm. and many people did, because this play had been on the boards for 15 years. So that, that's how he worked. It's not as if he invented the story of King Lear. What he did was inverted the story of King Lear. Yeah, and, and do we know how that was, that was accepted by, by audiences? Did they like it, this new darker 
We don't know. It's a great question. Uh, the best answer to that is sometime not long after the version that was staged in this year uh, ran. And we know this because of the differences between the printed quarto of the play and cheap paperback form in 1608 and the expensive folio version that came out 15 years later in 1623. We know that the ending was softened a bit, mm. made less brutal, okay. less harsh. So we don't know. There weren't five-star or three-star reviews of Lear appearing in the garden <laughs> in the Telegraph. There weren't no newspapers. No. And nobody sat down and said, God, that's Shakespeare's greatest play. But if somebody's softening it, there is a sense that it may have been too bleak. Especially in the kind of atmosphere. Yeah, and these plays are of their moment, mm. uh, always. And of course, they're of our moment too. Um, I mean, that year could have could have gone actually gone rather badly for him because obviously plague shut down the playhouses. How did that affect him? Do we know? It's so frustrating with so little we know. Is there about what actually he thinks? And there's just so little. Mm. And, and one of the things that uh, spending ten years picking through the shards that exist from this year, the, the very few remains is, you can start to put things together. Shakespeare lived in a small parish and inside the city walls in northwest London, St. Olives. Mm. And we have the records of deaths from that. They don't identify who died of what, but one of the things that I went back and looked at was how many people died in particular households, and there are multiple deaths in individual mm. households. We know plague struck London and struck this area quite hard in the autumn of 1606. And we also know that Shakespeare's landlady died at a fairly young age yeah. this year. So one of the things that uh, is close to speculation as I get in the book is that plague reached Shakespeare's own doorstep. Mm. So yeah, it was a bad year for England. If you think about both the gunpowder plot a year earlier and mm. plague now, Shakespeare may have dodged two bullets. I mean, the gunpowder plot. I mean, he was he was um, actually kind of linked, wasn't he, to some of the the on both sides mm. you know, <laughs> through the Arden connection. Yeah. He was linked with the plotters, and uh, it's less well known, but there was an uprising uh, staged by the plotters immediately after Guy Fox was discovered in London. They tried to create a Catholic uprising to overthrow yeah. the government. And this was in the heart of Shakespeare's country. Shakespeare's next door neighbor was the bag man holding the Catholic relics who was caught. So it doesn't get closer to home than that. And of course, Shakespeare's own daughter, Susanna, refuses in response to the anti-Catholic legislation uh, that's being enacted this spring, refuses to show up at church at Easter and is called in. Do we don't know what... Um Shakespeare's own religious leanings were, do we? We don't, although I'm sure a lot of people will read my book and decide that they do know. <laughs> I can tell you I don't know. No. All we could say is that he had Catholic neighbors. He had neighbors who were terrified of the Catholics as fifth columnists. Mm. So he is feeling, both in London and in his native town of, of Stratford-upon-Avon, he's feeling the things that are mm. threatening to pull the nation apart. Um, Antony and Cleopatra, you mentioned, was written the same year. How, what can we see in that play, um, you know, sort of reflected wider in, in England? It's not the only work of this year that hints at an increasing longing for Queen Elizabeth, but oh. it's the most powerful one that does so. When Elizabeth is in her final years, people are writing, we're tired of the old woman. And even after she dies, they're saying that, thank God, mm. we get a young, virile king with children. It's going to look great. Yeah. And then they realized he's not the man Queen Elizabeth was. He's not the ruler Queen Elizabeth was. And we're stuck with him. Yeah. Queen Elizabeth is that great model of a queen. And Shakespeare decides to write a play about Cleopatra, that great, great queen. And uh, it is a terrific story, and it is a tragedy of nostalgia, a longing for the greatness of Rome, which is, uh, by extension, a longing for what audiences felt had been better times under Elizabeth. What was happening in his life personally? Because I think the family were back in Stratford. I wish I knew. 
there's much more we know about Shakespeare professionally than we do about Shakespeare personally. One anecdote that was discovered just this past year as I was finishing the book gives me a slightly different sense of Shakespeare's personality, how he hung out with friends or not, than I had a decade ago in 1599, where I was quoting John Aubrey, who went up to Stratford, asked around, and what was Shakespeare like? Mm -hmm. And the local people said, he was not the kind of guy who liked to hang out, he'd always say he wasn't feeling well. Well, it turns out that's probably a Stratford thing and not a London thing, because a manuscript was discovered up in Scotland uh, this past year that records how at the Tabard Inn, not far from the Globe Theatre, Shakespeare, along with Burbage and other roistering fellows from those <laughs> Jacobean days, had cut or carved his name into the paneling at the Tabard Inn. So it's a little bit like Sardi's in New York yeah. or Joe Allen's here. Actors hang out and Shakespeare's graffiti artist writing his name. The building no longer exists, but that gives me a sense of a Shakespeare who was pretty good company yeah. and did go out after the show. Yeah. What made you pick this year out of all the others? I mean, obviously we've got all this going on as well, which I assume is a big part of it. Is there anything else that made you pick this year? I, I felt really bad after 1599 that I had um, ignored the Jacobean Shakespeare. And the BBC had asked me to do a three-hour documentary on the Jacobean Shakespeare. And I felt worse after f finishing that documentary. So I thought I have to pick a year. Could have been 16, 11, 12, when he writes three powerful romances. But I thought, God, these are great plays. And although I think I know them, I don't know them as well as mm. I might. And, and they're hard plays. And I thought, well, I, I, I like to talk about how plays were created and how they connected with the times. These are plays read a lot in school, uh, staged a lot. Give it a shot. And yeah. uh, no regrets about 1606. Uh, although it was a hard year to write about. Henry the the Fifth and, and the other the plays that came before, can they also be seen as, um, are they also reflections of of kind of what's happening around, in, in the same sense that, you know, Anthony Cleopatra and King Lear are? Yeah, in a way, there's a wonderful bridge between Henry the Fifth, which I wrote about in 1599, mm. and the way my book 1606 begins. In the chorus to the final act of Henry V, Shakespeare breaks with the past and he turns to his audience and describes the general of our gracious empress from Ireland coming. He's, he's talking about the Earl of Essex, who was in Ireland leading an army 16,000 strong to crush the Irish rebels. It was a, the campaign was a disaster. Essex came back, burst in upon Elizabeth as she was getting dressed. Last time he <laughs> oh, saw yeah. her alive. And he has a kind of botched uprising in 1601, and he's executed. Mm. Well, 1606 begins on January 5th with the political marriage of James's young son, the third Earl of Essex, to Frances Howard, one of the most beautiful and dangerous women because she was so beautiful in part and so uh, independent. And they're both teenagers. It turns mm. out not to be Romeo and Juliet. It turns out to be a crash and burn story. But the year begins with King James trying to arrange a political marriage that'll solve, really clean up the mess that Queen Elizabeth left behind. Mm. So it's a kind of bridge from Henry V to that Jacobean moment. Um, and where does Shakespeare go from 1606? Again, he, you know, we like to think of Shakespeare steadily churning out work. Yeah. But like most writers, he has good years and bad years. And he writes, to my mind, in inspired bunches. The three plays he writes this year are as inspired as you mm. get. He would write only uh, two plays, maybe three, in the years that followed leading up to 1610, when he writes three great late romances, Cymbeline, The Tempest, and The Winter's Tale. That's where he's heading. Although there are some byways, there's Coriolanus, there's uh, uh, Pericles, and there's the discovery that his theater company, and this is also an, a byproduct of the plague that weakened so many theater companies in 1606, but they acquired the Blackfriars Indoor Theater. 
And that meant Shakespeare could start working in more intimate, candlelit uh, atmospheres than he had been at the Outdoor Globe. So this is where he's heading, but he doesn't quite see that yet. He can imagine it this year, he'll taste it in 1610-11. Okay, so is that perhaps the next book, do you think? <laughs> you know, I'd like to think so. The 1599 mm -hmm. took me 15 years, this Gosh. one took me 10, and I just turned 60. So um, I'm worried about uh, the, the huge commitment to mm. uh, a year. Maybe I'll write about a day in the life yeah. of Shakespeare. <laughs> I mean, if there was a year, if you were going to write, would, would that be the year you it think? It is. It's really mm. a great year. And yeah. those are haunting plays. Yeah. Um, Don't let my publishers hear <laughs> this. Macbeth <laughs> um, um, obviously has a, 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 a a theme that the witches um, and that, that type of thing, which is something that James was very interested in. Yeah. He, he wrote, you know, pieces himself about it. Um, again, um, is, was that a reflection of what people were actually worrying about at the time? One of the hardest questions to answer is what people felt 400 years ago. Yeah. And so it's what I want to know as well. <laughs> well, I do yeah. too. And, you know, I've read James's essay in book on demonology and mm. witches and I read everything else in the period, and of course I read Macbeth. But the thing that helped me most understand the way that fear of witches and uh, the devil and being possessed uh, registered at this moment was a discovery by archaeologists uh, in London working on a National Trust House in Knoll. And they discovered there that, and they checked out, they could date the tree in the wood to this spring of 1606, which is amazing. Wow. So they found under the floorboards at Knoll an 18-foot oak beam, which had been prepared with anti-devil markings and all kinds of slashes and scorch marks that was put down facing the fireplace. And it was put in the room where the king was going to sleep in wow. order to keep those malevolent forces from coming through that rapid transit flu system into the king's bedroom. So it's not just King James or Shakespeare that's thinking about this. Yeah. It's the carpenters. It's everyone in this culture who is aware of these malevolent forces. And right after the gunpowder plot, everybody's thinking, where does evil come from? Did the devil put that in the minds of the plotters, the terrorists? Are they born bad? Do they yeah. become bad? Those are the kind of questions Shakespeare is wrestling with this year, and the culture is too. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine. It must have been terrifying for people to have lived through that year. You know, you've got plague, you see, plague, you've got these, you know, these, you know, potential explosions, you know, trying to, you know, kill you, the royal family, whether you like them or not. Um, it, it's very hard to kind of put yourself in that mindset, isn't it? Well, I'm a New Yorker, mm. and, I, you know, we, we both lived through 9-11 or 7 and 7 and uh, seven seven, and when you ride a bus past where that explosion took place mm. uh, in central London, or you go downtown in New York, you, you, you feel the memory of the swirl of emotions that everyone was feeling at the time. Fear, a desire for revenge, confusion. Uh, I think Shakespeare, at this point, in his career as an extraordinarily accomplished dramatist was was able to get hold of those welter of emotions mm. and, and and work them into his plays. I mean have you looked at his plays sort of in comparison with other plays of the day? Um, are they are they showing the same sort of thing? It's it's really interesting that you ask that. There's, his great rival is Ben Johnson. Mm. He writes arguably his greatest play, Valpone, at just this time. You know, February, March, 1606. It's also a gunpowder play. It's also a play about demonic possession and the like. But he didn't quite have his finger on the pulse of the moment in the way that Shakespeare did, which is why we're here talking about Macbeth and why there's a movie opening uh, as we speak about Macbeth and not one about Valpone. That was Joe Shapiro. 1606, William Shakespeare and the Year of Lear, is out now in the UK, published by Faber. In the US, it is also available, published by Simon & Schuster. 
And now we have a short advertisement break. Scandal, catastrophe and the rebirth of a world city. London's most famous diarist, brilliantly brought to life in one of the most turbulent periods in its history. Samuel Pepys, Plague, Fire, Revolution. Don't miss the largest ever exhibition chronicling the life of Samuel Pepys through his candid and witty diaries at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. To book tickets and find out more about this new special exhibition, visit rmg.co.uk slash peeps. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In 1937, Saoichi Sakamoto, a school teacher on the Hawaiian island of Maui, took a group of poor children of Japanese ancestry and trained them to become Olympic swimmers. Their story is both extraordinary in its own right and revealing about the experiences of people of Japanese origin in the 1930s and through into the Second World War. Julie Chekaway's new book, The Three-Year Swim Club, recounts these events and she spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton. Um, for people who might not know, uh, who was Sakamoto? What was his background? And what kind of, kind of compelled him to start this club up? Suichi Sakamoto was a Japanese-American man. He was first-generation Japanese-American, or Nisei. His father had been an immigrant to the U.S., to Maui, in 1899, along with many other Japanese who were fleeing um, poverty in Japan at the time. Sakamoto's father rose out of the fields, the cane fields and the sugar plantations to become a quite successful, a very successful shopkeeper in a very small and dusty town in Maui, very small outpost. But he really became middle-class. So Sakamoto was raised as a middle-class Nisei. When he was around 18, he was a bit of an outsider, a bit of an outlier. He had a joie de vivre and a sense of himself that was probably larger than his own set of circumstances. And he wanted to become a musician. <laughs> he loved, loved to play the ukulele and hapahaole music and his parents forbade it. <laughs> his mother smashed his instruments sent him off to a normal school in Oahu from Maui. And he came back a teacher at a rural elementary school at which he was miserable. <laughs> he was fantastically miserable until he began to notice the children on the plantation, the lives they lived. And he was inspired particularly one day to begin to help them. 
But I mean, what led him specifically to help them in this way? That's that's intriguing, yeah. I think. Yes. Well, he had begun to coach children. Uh, he was no coach uh, in any way. He was no athlete. But he coached them. He began to be a Boy Scout leader. Um, at any given time, in his at the beginning of his 30s, he was coaching five different Little Tots basketball teams, barefoot basketball teams at one time, uh, at one time. And one day in 32, 1932, he looked out of his window and he heard and saw, he heard screaming, shrieking. And it wasn't shrieking of delight or pleasure. And he walked outside to see that a hundred children or more, all of them naked, all of them work camp, labor camp kids, they were streaming out of the ditch, the irrigation ditch that ran just in front of the school. They were fleeing from the Luna or camp policeman who was astride an enormous snorting horse. And the camp policeman had in hand a very sharp whip with which he used, with, with which he would punish the children severely. And Sakamoto saw this, the children fleeing through the cane fields, hiding from the Luna, and very shortly thereafter went to the authorities at the plantation and asked, just could I possibly shut the current off on the ditch, because it was quite fast, could I shut the current off on the ditch for just one hour per day and oversee the children and let them play? And I, I will put this in as well. The ditches, the irrigation ditches that snaked down from the high mountaintops of Maui through the rainforests and into the arid central valley of Maui, into this village called Punane, a village of 8,000 souls living in 13 segregated camps, had no swimming pool and was more than 20 miles from the sea. The only place the children could have cooled off, and which was forbidden, was in the irrigation ditches. So Sakamoto was merely getting, was Sakamoto was merely seeing an injustice and wanted the kids to be able to cool off. It was only thereafter that he began even to think about uh, teaching them to swim. Mm. And when he did start to teach them to swim, how many did he teach? How many children? He had as many children as he saw in 1932 running out of the ditch. That was what he had, 100 children in 1932. The ditch is eight feet by four, eight feet wide by four feet deep. And it is not very long. It is about 50 yards, American yards long before you hit the next walk bridge over it, where he could possibly see and oversee and babysit the children. In that ditch, he formed a system whereby he'd have kids playing in age groups. Um, and somehow he managed to have that many children cooling off in the ditch. One day in 1932, he, he first of all, I should go back and say, not only was Sakamoto... Not only was he not a swim coach, nor really a, a, a very, he was not a trained coach of any of the sports that he was um, teaching the kids. He was also not an athlete, but he didn't swim. He couldn't swim. As a youth, he had, by the skin of his teeth only, passed his Eagle Scout swimming test. His instructor said of him and of the performance that it was the most tragic and pathetic he had ever seen. Though Sakamoto could jump in and save a child, which was good, of course, um, he could only do, by his own admission, he could only do what he called a little side stroke, survival swimming. So when he stood on the bridge, the little bridge that crossed this eight foot wide ditch, in 1932, 
something happened to him. As I said, he'd always had a sense of himself as someone who was meant to do something more. I don't, there are lots of places that that came from. I will go back to say that at the age of 12, he had been hit from behind by a police truck right out in front of his father's shop, and he was taken for dead. And at 12, he secretly began to believe that he was meant for something greater. He was saved for something greater. So he had this really voluminous uh, sense of himself, um, rather inflated sense of himself, but it served him well when he looked out from the, from the bridge and he saw the children playing, just splashing around in the water, not swimming. And in that moment, something happened to him. He had been seeing the children as children of the working poor. He had, been, he had seen the children as in a dead-end world, in the closed circuit of the virtual slavery of the plantation. They were destined to the hard work of their parents in the fields, never to get off the island. But suddenly, <laughs> he saw them that moment, and he said, I saw them as if they were bright gems bobbing in the sun. Something changed. He saw value in them, potential in them. And without thinking, he called out, how about I teach you something about swimming, eh? And that's where it began. How early on did the idea of entering the Olympics come into things? I think the idea of entering the Olympics didn't come until 1936. 1936 was the, um, you know, Hitler's carnival in Berlin, right? Uh, it was the massive um, Nazi Olympics. At those Olympics, Japanese swimmers just swam the swim trunks off of everyone. And Sakamoto, in seeing this, was buoyed and thought to himself, not only do I have kids who are beginning to swim well in the ditch, not only do I have kids who are starting to beat Caucasian kids, but they're Japanese, they're of Japanese ancestry. Why not? Why is it that we've not considered ourselves as athletes and as rising somehow um, to the surface of life through sport? So that was one thing. In 1932, the Japanese had come to Los Angeles and they had beaten the pants off of, excuse me, they had beaten the pants off of every American swimmer, practically, also booing, buoying the Japanese-American, the Japanese-American community on the West Coast. So I do think when Sakamoto called out to the children, how about I teach you something about swimming, A, as early as 32, there was a proto moment, but I do not think he ever considered the Olympics a possibility at that point. In 37, his kids were swimming tremendously. They were traveling already to Honolulu and beginning to beat the students at a very elite school, school excuse me, at a very elite uh, private school. And these were quite good swimmers. And his two swimmers in particular, Kiyo Nakama, 14, and Halo Hiroshi, 15, were coming home with trophies. And in the wake of this moment, in May of 37, the end of May, 1937, it began to occur to him, they're going to be able to swim against Olympians. And so quietly, but buoyantly, again, but ebulliently, he locked himself into a room and planned this out. On June 7th of 1937, he called a meeting and he called to order the first gathering of the three-year swim club. There were a hundred children in the room and he told them, if you'd like to join, 
we are going to the Olympics in Tokyo in three years. It's 1937. The Olympics are three years away. And some of you, if you swim hard enough, work hard enough, and listen to me, you will be on the U.S. men's and women's Olympic teams. I promise you. What happened um, when they did reach the Olympics? Well, um, we should go backwards, though, because the, the, the children of the three-year swim club, the young men, were unable to go to the 1940 Olympics or the 1944 Olympics because the Olympics was canceled, first in Tokyo, then in Helsinki, uh, because of the war in the Pacific and the war in Europe. Not only that, but they had to go to war. They enlisted willingly in the segregated Japanese-American unit known as the 442nd Infantry and 100th Battalion, which was the bloodiest and most decorated battalion in military history, um, American military history. They came back old men, <laughs> as, as you can imagine. It was... It was a tremendous, um, they made tremendous sacrifices. And when they came back, they still had the hope, and so did Sakamoto, of going to the next Olympics, which was in London in 1948, the London Austerity Olympics. And there was a core group of the three-year swim club remaining who was motivated to go and they came back to Honolulu, where Sakamoto was then living at the time, and they trained with him. And they trained with him in the old ways, the rigorous ways, the ways that were so revolutionary, the ways that had probably allowed them to survive the war, frankly. And they traveled to Detroit in 1948, in July of 48, and they competed at the Detroit Trials. One of the swimmers, although they all came very close, one of the swimmers of the three-year swim club qualified and made the men's U.S. swim team and traveled to London and represented the group as a whole. He served as a proxy for the group, and he served as the proxy for Suichi Sakamoto's dream. He served as a proxy for that long-held dream and vision. And he swam there. The three-year swim club triumphed in so many ways. Bill Smith, whose improbable Caucasian name belies his ethnicity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he I was know. A full-blooded Hawaiian. Um, so Bill Smith won two gold medals at the 1948 Olympics on behalf of the three-year swim club. That was in itself a great triumph and a fulfillment of the dream that began on June 7, 1937. But where I think the greater triumph in the story and in the history of the three-year swim club is in the lives of the individual swimmers who did not make it to those Olympics, but who went on to do so much more than win gold medals. They were national champs to begin with. They were international champs. They swam against um, swimmers in Nazi Germany, against Hungarians. They went to Australia. They won medal after medal as a team. They had three national championships. They had achieved and they qualified for the 40 Olympics. However, when you look at the lives of Japanese Americans, at that time in history, it was the most difficult time to be Japanese-American in the late 30s and early 40s. Most of the people they knew, most from the mainland, were interned in, in, in prison camps across the West. And the others were in the, in the battle with them in the 442nd. There was nothing simple or welcome about being Japanese-American. And coming back from the war and achieving the kinds of status they did as U.S. citizens and as global citizens 
Um, and that's the kicker. I think that's if you, the epilogue of the book explains what they went on to do. They became tremendously successful people, politicians, teachers. In that, I believe, they ultimately fulfilled Suichi Sakamoto's dream. He taught them hygiene. He taught them how to live cleanly, how not to swear, how to speak proper English. He taught them to hold themselves upright and to swim against the current of their circumstances. And it wasn't only to get to the Olympics. It was to go to college and go on and lead the life of a full citizen. And that's what they did. If this story could change readers' impressions of this period or this people or of the war or of history more generally, how would you like it to do that? Going back to the notion of this is such a hot issue now, isn't it? Immigration, whether it's in the UK, whether it's in Germany, France or the US. Here in the US, we have a presidential candidate wishing to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Literally, a wall. And there are people in this country who believe a wall would be pretty good, a pretty good thing. This is complete, this completely flies in the face of what we know, at least on American soil and U.S. soil, has been the beauty of the American project. And that is that it is fueled not, it is fueled not by Caucasians alone. It is fueled by the immigrant work ethic and by immigrants of all kinds. And to look at this story is to see that those who have been ostracized, those who have been imprisoned, those who have literally been walled off, misunderstood, and devalued, are those very people who carry inside themselves a dream that can benefit the country, the world, and can bring joy, prosperity, and great, great success to the, to the country. They can only enrich the country if given an opportunity. That's what I finally see. That was Judy Checkaway, the three-year swim club, the untold story of the Sugar Ditch Kids and their quest for Olympic glory, is out now in the UK, published by Little Brown, and in the US it is published by Grand Central. For the past year and a half, we've been running a series in the magazine and on the podcast called Our First World War, that charts the events of that conflict a hundred years on, through the voices of those who lived and fought through it. Well, we've now got to November 1915, and here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is Sergeant Jack Dorgan recalling his experiences of handing out the rum ration. The rum ration is laid down, I understand, by army regulations. You didn't, you don't get, I don't know what regulations there are, I've no idea, I've never seen them. You never got rum in the summer, you only got rum in the winter, in the bad weather, and most very acceptable it is. Now, a rum ration would come up in a rum jar about uh, 14 inches high, stone jar, with a handle on, and uh, it had a, a stopper uh, to for to empty the, the rum. Now, as far as I know of the rum ration regulation, it had to be issued in our battalion, I'm only speaking about our battalion, it had to be issued by an officer and an NCO. Now, me being one of the very few, very few teetotal sergeants in the battalion invariably was the room sergeant. Whenever the room had to be issued in our company or in our battalion, any company in the battalion, invariably that was my job. 
accompanied by an officer. The officer would carry the rum jar and the sergeant or the NCO would carry a spoon, a large spoon, a large spoon, and the rum ration consisted of one spoonful. Now, when I think back of those days of the rum and compare that rum with the rum we get today here in England, it, the rum we had in France and Belgium was much stronger than the rum you have today. And although you may think a spoonful of rum is not much, it was both beneficial and seemed to be ample and the spoon was always licked by the fella when he received his ration. That was Jack Dorgan. Our First World War continues each month in BBC History magazine. And speaking of the magazine, our December edition is currently on sale. Inside this month's issue, we have articles on Henry VIII's will, the luck of Richard III, the history of China, and the Loch Ness Monster, among other things. You can get hold of our December edition now in all good news agents and digitally. And that is pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking to Jonathan Dimbleby about the Battle of the Atlantic. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.